Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Boy, are we ready to roll today. Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch, our last regular Three Martini Lunch uh, edition for 2020. But fear not, our next six episodes will take us through the end of the year. And they are our annual Three Martini Lunch Award uh, series. Uh, Six different shows, three awards for each episode. And uh, we've got some praising to do and we've got a whole lot of venting to do. So... The fact that tomorrow is officially Festivus means the airing of the grievances begins with some of these categories on the three martini lunch. Today we've got uh, bad slash good in our first martini. Uh, Then we've got uh, what we think is good. And then also uh, crazy good and fun for our last one. We're brought to you today by the Jordan Harbinger Show. Jim, our first one, which is uh, bad slash good, is the fact that the COVID stimulus is done. It passed by lopsided margins. In the House and Senate yesterday, it's about half the amount that uh, Republicans wanted Nancy Pelosi to sign on to before the election, but she's basically admitted now she was never going to do anything that could possibly give President Trump any uh, momentum heading into the election, so that's why she didn't do it. So now this one's about half the size, but it doesn't mean it's not full of a bunch of crap. There's a bunch of bloated spending here. We've got gender studies in Pakistan to the tune of $10 million. We got $70 million for Sudan, $1.3 billion for Egypt. We got a lot of climate change stuff in here. But ultimately, it ends up being um, approved by lopsided margins because what member of Congress wants to go home and tell the guy that runs the local restaurant or the local dry cleaners, well, I was going to help you out, but then they put all this garbage in there, so I had to vote no. Uh, And so you end up voting for it because you know the people back home need the stuff in the bill that actually belongs in the bill, like the uh, extra PPP funding, like some of the extra money for families that are struggling. But Jim, I think Chip Roy of Texas sums it up pretty well in the problems with the, the bloated spending as well as the process here. He says the American people got a very clear glimpse at the total dysfunction and incompetency of the U.S. Congress as it passed a massive lobby-driven 5,600-page spending bill negotiated in back rooms to spend over $2.3 trillion with mere hours to review it. There is other spending, appropriation spending, besides the COVID relief. Allegedly passed as COVID relief, we actually voted on both COVID measures and a massive omnibus spending package, a package that should have been divided into well over 20 bills. I voted no on both spending measures because I will neither endorse a corrupt legislative process nor agree to pass legislation that actively harms our nation, as this bill will assuredly do. It will rack up debt, fund the very local governments locking down schools and businesses, extend federal subsidies to pay people more not to work than to work, fall short on desperately needed small business relief, and continue funding policies such as endless wars, open borders, an anti-American education system, and so on and so forth. So, Jim, the process is clearly broken. We don't have regular order anymore. Every December and other times, we get these bloated spending bills negotiated by the White House and the congressional leaders, and everybody else on Capitol has to take it or leave it, and the uh, taxpayer gets soaked. Certain essential things did get covered, so it's not a total loss, but there's got to be a better way to do this. It's called regular order, and neither party's interested in doing it anymore. Yeah. So the first thing we should note is that this is, you know, not just one bill, but a whole bunch of bills that get mushed together, right? Under the traditional regular order that was supposed to be coming back under Republicans and the Democrats very quickly abandoned once they came in charge of the House, 
You're supposed to have the appropriations committees that look at the federal budget, decide how much everybody's supposed to get, goes to the subcommittees, goes to the full committee, goes to the full house. Spending bills have to start in the house. Then goes over to the Senate. The Senate does its version. You go to a conference committee, and that's how each one is supposed to be done. And ideally, each appropriations bill will be done separately. Instead, of course, what they do is they mush all these things into a giant omnibus bill. So even if you have one part of one bill you think is terrible, you dare not vote against it. Or if you do vote against it, you're effectively voting for all the good stuff that also isn't there. The people are going to run attack ads against you if you vote against. So when you see something like um, settling uh, federal policy for the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, uh, that is actually part of a, a effort to uh, stand up to China on the way it has basically attempting to take control of Buddhism and Tibet. Um, I actually think it's perfectly fine and justifiable. Whether it belongs in the giant end of the year spending bill, that's another conversation. And all other things being equal, I'd rather it wasn't in the giant end of the year spending bill. But so if you hear about a whole bunch of stuff, it's not that Congress decided to put a four bunch of foreign aid in the COVID bill. It's that they took the COVID bill and attached it to all the giant appropriation spending bills that they already had there. Um, it's bad. There's no two way about it. This is not the way the system is supposed to operate. Nobody can evaluate any of the uh, individual programs or spending priorities on but themselves. They're all mushed together. Um, if you're looking for any good news, you can point out that, uh, that you know Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats back in May wanted about 3.4 trillion in their Heroes Bill. Republicans came back with the Heels Bill because every bill has to have some sort of you know lovely acronym. <laughs> uh, back in July for 950 billion. This final agreement is much closer to the Republican version. Um, Republicans got something much closer to what they wanted. The Democrats got to what what they had originally wanted back in spring. You know, is is that a huge win? Nah, it, it's deeply frustrating. The spending process is completely broken, and it's interesting, Greg. You and I were talking earlier this year. The other members of Congress get irritated by this because because so much of what Congress does gets lumped into this giant. You ever have like Play-Doh? You, you have young girls. So the girl, you know, the Play-Doh gets mushed together and it's not one color anymore. Yes. And you can't separate it all. And the reds and the pinks and the purples and the oranges are all mushed together and all turns into this hideous glob. That's what this spending bill is. And you can't pull out the parts that you don't like and vote on that one separately. It's a bad system. That said, this was necessary. The editors of National Review have an editorial entitled an edit A Necessary Relief Bill. Yes, they need to get this uh, relief through. Um, and also there's some good news about uh, the way Pat Toomey has ensured, uh, held out for a very long time, making sure the Fed's emergency lending programs remain limited to emergencies. And that may be the single most consequential part of that, because otherwise getting the, uh, the Fed permanently involved in, in all kinds of forms of the economy would probably be uh, the sort of thing we should debate as a full-fledged measure, not something that could kind of an emergency measure that just takes on a life of its own and never gets repealed. So there are some, there's some good stuff in this bill. It's just a terrible process. And, you know, we make this complaint, it seems like every year, and just a whole bunch of members of Congress complain about it, and yet somehow nobody can ever seem to stop it, Greg. <laughs> I hope my wife's blood pressure is dropping right now because I'm pretty sure Play-Doh is her least favorite child toy for the very <laughs> reason you just explained. Not only do they all mash together, but it's uh, it's not fun to get it out of the carpet and it just seems to end up everywhere. So uh, whenever there's uh, Play-Doh given uh, by people, she'll often say, oh, great, they can play with this at your house when they come over. 
You know what this is, Greg? This legislation is mixed up multicolored Play-Doh in somebody's hair. <laughs> hair as well. Yep, it ends up in the hair a lot too. Well, what we need on Capitol Hill are a lot more critical thinkers. And so maybe some of these people, in addition to listening to the wisdom you get every day here at the Three Martini Lunch, uh, they could check out the Jordan Harbinger Show. Uh, it's a podcast a lot of people are listening to, and it was named one of Apple's best in 2018. Uh, it's aimed at making listeners better critical thinkers so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, whether it's in Congress or anywhere else. You know, there's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. And you thought your Monday was rough. <laughs> Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. You know, episodes have all kinds of intriguing topics, things like the fight to defend the free world with H.R. McMaster or the principles of investing with Ray Dalio. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant you'll find is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. In fact, uh, you'll often see, if you go to his webpage, how uh, guests say, nobody's ever asked me this stuff before. Uh, you really dug in deep, and I've uh, admitted things and, and, and talked about things that nobody else has bothered to ask before. You can find something you can apply to your own life in these podcasts, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or maybe just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you look at things. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Jim, uh, the omnibus spending bill, along with some of the COVID relief, was a gargantuan Play-Doh mess, as you explained. But it doesn't mean that everything was bad. Business owners got some help. Uh, struggling families got some help. And it's it was really, really nice of lawmakers to think of us, too. Uh, this doesn't happen a lot on Capitol Hill, especially given how much we criticize the process. But the three-martini lunch tax deduction has been doubled, yes. Uh, it's not being portrayed well, of course, because you know we're not seen as something favorable in the eyes of the mainstream media. But here's what MarketWatch says about it. Uh, the three-martini lunch tax deduction, which President Trump has pushed for since the spring as a means to boost a restaurant industry that has been hit especially hard by the pandemic, businesses until now have only been able to take 50% of their meal expenses off of their federal taxes since the 1980s. But a proposal backed by the White House and Senator Tim Scott, a South Carolina Republican, would let them write off 100%. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has included this tax break as a White House priority in the stimulus bill negotiations. And they had folks like uh, uh, Ron Wyden very upset about it. It says Republicans are nickel and diming benefits for jobless workers while at the same time pushing for tax breaks for three martini power lunches. It's unconscionable. I don't see us as a power lunch, Jim. We're just the three martini lunch. Uh, other people are saying, uh, you know, fat cats are getting a big break here. I don't think uh, we would refer to us as fat cats either, uh, Jim. But well, you're uh, not. <laughs> and so as far as I know, it made it in, Jim. So uh, I, I really do appreciate the shout out from members of Congress. And hopefully everyone can get a nice deduction from listening to the podcast. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Apparently, this applies to things besides our podcast. Really? Uh, I believe people should get a tax deduction for listening to this podcast. I, I imagine you really can't. Although, if you can figure out some way to make listening to this podcast necessary for your business, maybe you can try to carry it as a business expense. We'll see. But anyway, like semi-seriously about this, Greg, I, I, 
I'm always reminded uh, back when I started at Congressional Quarterly back in the you know Mesozoic era of the late 90s. Um, at least a couple of times I write about uh, Patrick Kennedy, the son of Ted Kennedy, who was then a congressman from uh, Rhode Island. And every year he would introduce legislation attempting to reduce the taxes and give a tax break for purchasing a yacht. Of course, everyone will kind of chuckle and say, what, what's going on with a Kennedy, you know, trying to, you know, give a tax breaks for yacht owners? Well, it turns out Kennedy's district in Rhode Island had a lot of boat makers and they are the people who make yachts. And I think it's worth remembering the story of not just the yacht tax, but the luxury tax. Because back in 1990, the, you know, they decided, all right, you know, it's time for us to, to budget, Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. And we hear the word omnibus in Washington. You should be very nervous. Yes. Um, Bush broke his read my lips vow. And that was the one that enacted the new tax on luxury items, luxury automobiles, aircraft, jewelry, furs, and of course, yachts costing more than $100,000. A couple years later, they do research. What happened when we enacted the luxury tax? Well, the revenue was a lot less than they projected, like about half, surprise, surprise, because lo and behold, people changed their behavior. They bought fewer of those more highly taxed products. Demand went down when the prices went up. And lo and behold, one of the big things was people stopped buying yachts made in the United States because the taxes were higher. And lo and behold, so the Joint Economic Committee does a study of this and they find the tax destroys 330 jobs in jewelry manufacturing, 1,470 jobs in aircraft industry, and 7,600 jobs in the boating industry. Greg, do you think those people who are working in the boating industry who lost their jobs were rich? No. I mean, you know, maybe a handful were. Maybe you lose an executive here and there. But by and large, the guys who build the boats are not enjoying three marketing lunches and are not enjoying you know, uh, living Robin Leach's you know, champagne dreams and caviar uh, fantasies or whatever the heck it was. <laughs> Yeah, these were guys who just made an honest living building boats. And, and it's the same thing on the effect. When people, uh, Greg, some of the same people who are complaining about this three martini lunch tax deduction are also saying, we need to do something for everyone who's being laid off by restaurants and bars. What do you think this does? <laughs> this encourages people to spend more money at bars and restaurants. It encourages people who have a lot of money to do this. Like companies say, hey, you know what? Do a business lunch. Take out the clients. Go out. Order order the drinks. Do you know, run up the tab? We're going to deduct 100% of it. It's an easy business tax deduction for them. Helps the waiters. Helps the cook staff. Helps the restaurants. It's good news for everybody. I, I, you know, if you want to argue there are other tax uh, uh, provisions of the tax code that are more important, okay, we can have that conversation. I would much rather see the bar and restaurant industry thriving than to have another round of government uh, uh, check giveaways and stuff like that. I want to minimize government dependency and I want to maximize the amount of economic activity going out there. Oh, by the way, governments do benefit because they end up having sales taxes on all the food and drink and everything they're buying there. So, And of course, the income for all the wait staff and all that stuff. So, Greg, I just described an example from 1990, <laughs> 30 years ago, and we still aren't learning this lesson. No, that's exactly right. I mean, the tax code is there to either encourage or discourage. And when you do this, you do encourage uh, the business people to do what they do. And yeah, they get a benefit from it. But you're also keeping, especially right now, a lot of people in business. So they, this makes a ton, a ton of sense. Also, from my perspective, Jim, I think if you listen to the podcast while eating lunch, uh, I think that possibly qualifies <laughs> you for the deduction. You should consult a tax preparation expert before actually putting that on your 1040 yes, or whatever. Jim and Greg are not tax advisors and are not CPAs and should not. no one should follow our advice without, uh, without carefully. Can you? 
Follow, yeah, follow your tax preparation at, uh, at your own risk. Hey, guys, it's Mock and Daisy from The Chicks on the Right, and we're excited to tell you about our podcast, The Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. If you've been stressed lately with the information overload on social media or just don't feel like anything in the news makes sense anymore, don't worry, because we're here to clear things up. Every week, we discuss topics like cancel culture, national crisis, what's happening to our new generations. And if you're just plain tired of people trying to tell you what to do or how to live your life, we tackle that, too. Find out more by going to our website, chicksontheright.com, or Start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a comment or review and subscribe. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And since it's our last non-special edition of 2020 and we're only two days away from Christmas Eve, I think it's only appropriate that we spend a little bit of time talking about Die Hard. Uh, Die Hard, of course, (laughs) is the greatest action film of all time. Bruce Willis, not that long ago, maybe a year or two ago, said that Die Hard was not a Christmas movie. It was a Bruce Willis movie. John McTiernan is the director of Die Hard. He says it is a Christmas movie. However, he also claims that it's essentially an anti-capitalist film, which I disagree with strongly, Jim. It's amazing how these people who are directly involved in making these things don't have their facts straight here. But uh, John McTiernan basically didn't want to do the story at first because, and this part is true, uh, the original story of Die Hard, I believe, involved Islamic terrorists, and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to do something uh, a little bit different, and so that's why we got uh, Eastern European terrorists in here, which ended up trying to rob the Nakatomi Corporation. I won't make any more spoilers here because it's you know it's only been 32 years since the movie came out. And so... He's a weird guy. Let's just say that. I watched the video of this. He's not even looking at the camera. He's just kind of muttering a bunch of asides uh, throughout. Uh, and his point is, is that he wanted John McClane to be a, a working class guy, which he was. He was a New York cop. And, uh, and so he insisted on one extra line of dialogue that really set the stage for all this. It's when Argyle picks him up at the airport and says he's not sure what to do next because he's never driven a limo before. And John McClane says, that's OK. I've never ridden in one before. And so therefore... He uh, decided that uh, McLean was just a normal guy, and therefore he could be the hero. And I guess the people who had a more competent role in the story, that being the police and uh, perhaps the FBI, uh, got a much different take in the movie version of Die Hard. And so, uh, Jim, I mean, he's he's entitled to his take, but uh, I don't believe that trying to steal $640 million dollars in negotiable bearer bonds from the Nakatomi Corporation qualifies as capitalism. I believe that's theft on a grand scale. And other than Ellis, I don't think Nakatomi comes off all that bad in the film. Well, okay, I might quibble with you there a little bit, Greg. This is really what we've been itching to talk about all year long on this podcast. Yeah, politics, news, pandemic, presidential election, but really... The true meaning of Die Hard is what is the beating heart underneath the surface of this podcast. So, uh, first of all, Greg, I concur with your assessment. If you watch Netflix's uh, The Movies That Made Us, little you know one-hour documentary about the making of Die Hard, John McTiernan is featured in it a great deal. I think he has to rank as one of the all-time great directors, not just of action movies, but maybe of any movies of the modern era. He also, as far as I can tell, can't smile. <laughs> and has never enjoyed a single moment of his entire life ever. Certainly not making any of these movies, even though I think they're masterpieces. He just looks like he's never enjoyed any of it. And the very thought of it brings back uh, physical pain to him in some way. Um, So I'll make one aspect in which I'll say his argument is semi-justifiable. It is very clear that they, I think, a cornerstone of the appeal of the Die Hard series is John McClane is very much the working class, rough around the edges, 
not necessarily the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he's very observant and no- notices his surroundings very well. Um, smarter than he looks, shall we say. Street-level detective, underdog character. And if they say, oh, he's never been in a limo before. Fine, okay. We're, we're really emphasizing here is that John McClane is an underdog. He, he's heading into this, a city he doesn't know, a circumstance he doesn't know. He doesn't know how his wife's going to respond to him when he, when he greets her. Clearly, the McClane marriage is on the rocks. Everything is working against him, and he's walking around an airport with that giant, uh, it's a giant teddy bear, right? Yep. And he looks, he knows he looks ridiculous. He feels ridiculous, and he's no idea. You know, this, this, so it's emphasizing that. So in that sense, yes. And I think if Hans Gruber had been played by, if they played him the way they had the villain in, say, True Lies, then I think it would probably not be remembered as great and classic a movie. Alan Rickman adds a lot to that part. And yes, technically Hans Gruber. Is an, he's an East German, right? Because of his brother's role, right? Infiltration unit? I believe so. I mean, he's from the radical Volksfrei movement. We know that. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So he's trained by the Germans. But let's face it. It's Alan Rickman. He's the most British man alive. <laughs> right? Everything about this guy. And of course, it may, we've seen lots of movies with terrorism. But what makes Hans Gruber stand out is that he has the benefits of a classical education. He is refined, he is dignified, he is sophisticated, and he comes across as brilliant, right? So you're dealing with, you know, you have this great contrast between your hero and your villain. And the fact that he's not a, you know, he periodically gives his comments about the uh, the Provo Front and, uh, uh, was it, is it, is Asian it Emerald Dawn? Dawn? Asian what? Dawn. Asian Dawn, thank you. He read about them in Time Magazine. Um <laughs> All of these groups, you know, he comes across as a left-wing terrorist, but we can all tell for, from fairly early on, this is not really about terrorism. This is really about theft. And in the end, the motive is greed. Um, there were a bunch of people when they started making the later Die Hard films. There were only four, right, Greg? I believe there's only three. I'm if, okay. iffy on four and five never happened, clearly. Yeah, the, the, there's a kind of like they made that battery commercial earlier. I choose <laughs> to believe that the what's claimed to be the fourth Die Hard movie is actually just a really advanced I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ad for Apple. <laughs> um, they couldn't get Hodgman, so they put in Bruce Willis instead. But anyway, so you have these later movies and people said, oh, you know, a Die Hard movie after 9-11 would be great. But somebody made the interesting observation, the Die Hard movies are not really about terrorism. They are about thieves disguised as terrorism. And in each one of them, the core of the plot is that it looks like it's a terrorist attack, but in fact, there is another agenda at work and somebody is trying to do something even more nefarious, even more sneaky under the guise of what we've come to expect as terrorism. Um, the one quibble I will have is that you're right. First of all, Ellis is the scum of the earth and we're all we're rooting for the villains to shoot him. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. Uh, and and so we, we really... You know, that I, I've always had this vibe, though, that there was something somewhat shady about the Nakatomi Corporation. It may be that in the late 1980s, when this movie was made, we were told in American culture that the Japanese were taking over. If you want the quintessential example of that, go watch another action classic, Rising Sun, featuring Wesley Snipes and Sean Connery, in which you will be informed that Japan is about to take over the United States through economic power right before Japan went into a, a recession that lasted roughly a decade or so. Even Mr. Takagi, who won't be able to join us for the rest of his life, even he seems a little bit suspicious until the moment he dies. And, you know, until uh, there's something about him, about the other ones. We in the audience, perhaps because we're rooting for John McClane, aren't supposed to be completely warm and fuzzy towards the Nakatomi Corporation. There's something about them that seems too slick, too impersonal. Um, the cocktail party, the Christmas party at the top always seems kind of this 
um, Bacchanalian excess. Uh, they're celebrating the big deal they've just done. We're not supposed to really like the Nakatomi employees, but we do recognize that they shouldn't die at the hands of a terrible group of terrorists. So um, I do see that vibe. But on the other hand, as you observe, Greg, you can't really say, oh, that this is a, a pro-left socialist movie because both the police and the FBI, uh, other than Al Powell, come across as a bunch of bumbling idiots who can't be trusted to do anything. In fact, really, if it's a Federalist movie, I would argue, Greg, because local law enforcement is it has some competence as opposed to the FBI and the Johnsons, God rest their souls. <laughs> well, there's so much that's correct there. Two quick points in, in response to that, Jim. Uh, first of all, there are so many magnificent dimensions of Die Hard, but one of my absolute favorites, and I think this is absolutely revolutionary in the movies, was, like you said before, it was not a one-dimensional evil uh, terrorist leader in Hans Gruber. He was fully evil. Don't get me wrong about that. But the writers gave him phenomenal lines, many of them very, very funny. And I think that uh, was just so different from the kind of cookie-cutter bad guy uh, approach that a lot of filmmakers were taking at the time. It really makes it so much fun. And also, uh, you know, we talked about how John McTiernan uh, did not want uh, the police and the FBI to come across as uh, exceedingly competent, with the exception of Al Powell. And uh, the FBI in particular, turns out in the 2000s, John McTiernan actually got sent to prison for a number of things, including lying to the FBI. So I can only imagine what making Die Hard Now would look like for him. If you thought he was negative towards the FBI in the 80s, wow, I bet it'd be even more intense now. Well, okay, so then the other kind of nagging aspect of the Die Hard movies that uh, the, as I age, you know, nags at me. So in the first one, you have a bunch of gung-ho guys who want two Johnsons who want to relive Vietnam. And, and you know, I believe uh, they don't make it out, right? The, the helicopter crashes. Yes, we're giving it all away. Right, but so, yes, they, the, the, we need a couple extra FBI guys, I guess. Okay, so in Die Hard 2, the corruption doesn't just uh, involve, you know, it's not just that the FBI is incompetent, it's that the top team military special forces who are called in Correct. are also, in fact, in on the plan, uh, right. on the, the plot, right? Yep. So, like, you know, so even the U.S. military is corrupt and conspiring with a Castro lookalike Noriega figure, um, who apparently, apparently this was all hatched during Granada uh, in 1983, that, that military operation that lasted, what, 20 minutes? Uh, we sent an entire platoon to Granada, despite the fears we would sink the island with their weight. I shouldn't laugh at Granada. Granada. If you served in Granada, God bless you people. But nonetheless, like that aspect of the movie never quite made sense with me. The idea that they'd have all of their uh, fake rounds and their guns and the fake raid on the old church and, and all that kind of stuff. To say nothing of the fact of um, uh, William Sadler's character being a, a you know ex-mercenary and the idea that entire groups of the military have now become mercenaries and working for these uh, these these drug cartel uh, leaders and stuff. Um, the NYPD is somewhat competent in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Nonetheless, it all comes down to a, a, a Harlem electrician knowing the right answers to trivia questions to save the day. <laughs> and uh, and also the FBI and the unnamed figure who's clearly from the CIA uh, in the back of the van yes. in that one. Yes. They, they know stuff, but they can't really do anything that's all that helpful. I guess by, by Die Hard with a Vengeance, the FBI is trying to help, in part because the agent in charge has a kid in school um, <laughs> and wants to save him. By number four, they're all utterly incompetent, but the FBI official still is named Johnson, for those who noticed it. And the fifth one didn't happen, so there you go. 
Wow. Well, a few spoilers given out there, but uh, since the first two diehards are set at Christmas time, uh, hopefully you'll have a chance to enjoy one or both. John McTiernan did not uh, direct the second one. He did, however, direct Die Hard with a Vengeance, which I would argue is the second best uh, in the series. So, uh, Jim, what a way to end the year of our regular shows. Uh, Just a reminder that starting tomorrow, we'll have the first of our Three Martini Lunch Awards. We'll be looking at the most overrated, underrated, and honest political figures of 2020. As the whole list goes on, we'll be taking a look at who we're sorry to see go, rising stars, political figures fading into oblivion, best and worst political theater, best and worst political ideas. Uh, We're going to have an absolute shredding of the media, and then we'll wrap it all up on New Year's Eve with our person of the year, our turncoat of the year, and our predictions for 2021. So, Jim, as we wrap up the regular editions for this year, uh, well, we'll leave it to the specials to, 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 to break down what actually happened this year. But we made it, and we really hope you enjoy these specials over the next several days. And one last note, listeners, the uh, parts 2 through 27 of Jim and Greg overanalyze every aspect of the Die Hard film series will be uploaded at some point in the future. <laughs> Keep your eyes open for it. I believe it adds up to a total of anywhere between 38 to 39 hours of material. Just wait, just wait, just wait and see. And that's just the first one. <laughs> Kidding. At least for now. Well, that's actually not a bad idea. Jim, have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. See you soon, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about the Jordan Harbinger Show. Thank you for listening to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Please subscribe if you don't already. Also, we're very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. You can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day, and please join us Wednesday for the start of our year-end series on the Three Martini Lunch.